So in October, the year was 1810, a 20-year-old girl from Bradford, New England, wrote the following words in her diary. If nothing in providence appears to prevent, I must spend my days in a heathen land. I'm a creature of God, and he has an undoubted right to do with me whatever seems good in his sight. He has my heart in his hands. And when I'm called to face danger, to pass through scenes of terror and distress, he can inspire me with fortitude and enable me to trust in him. Jesus is faithful. His promises are precious. Were it not for these considerations, I should sink down with despair. Those words were written by a young woman by the name of Anne Hasseltine. She would soon to be Anne Judson, wife to the famous American missionary Adoniram Judson. She wrote this in her diary before she married him, knowing that taking his hand in marriage was a call to the mission field. And even though she was scared, even up against the cliffs of despair, she writes that Jesus' promises are precious. She writes that her heart is in his hands and that she will do whatever he calls her to. Whatever seems good in his sight. And so she fulfilled her mission. She went to the mission field with her husband, Adoniram Judson. And of course, their impact, their mission society in the countries of India and Burma is profound, legendary. An incredible impact that they made there. She was willing to do her part, to be a part of the greater mission, the Great Commission. She was willing to do whatever seems good in the Lord's sight. And so the question for us, Summit Bible Church, is are we? Is your heart in His hands? Are you willing to fulfill your part in the Great Commission. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. We're looking today at verses 19 to 20. We are in this mini-series, a part of a greater series. We've started my time here at Summit Bible Church looking at the fundamentals or the essentials of our faith. And we're pulling them all out of the Gospel of Matthew. Now Matthew presents Jesus as king. And so we looked first at the king's message, which is the gospel. It's the good news, the saving message of Jesus Christ. And the gospel is good news to save and it is good news to sanctify. We don't, you know, it's not a one and done kind of thing. You don't believe in the gospel and then you're done with it. But we need the gospel every day, even as believers. It is fundamental. It's an essential of our faith. Next, we moved along to the great commandments in Matthew chapter 22. We looked at the two commandments there. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. One of the essential, fundamental marks of a true believer is the mark of love. Love first for God and love second, an overflow of agape, sacrificial love for neighbor. So we have the king's message, we have the king's commands, and then we move to the king's mission in Matthew chapter 28. Last week, we just looked at the setup, just kind of the context surrounding this great mission. We looked at the context we looked at the men who Jesus gives it to, these disciples who were very ordinary, very weak, yet they were willing to embrace their mission for Christ. We looked at the place where Jesus gives it in Galilee, and this is strategic to his mission. Galilee of the Gentiles. The gospel would be preached to all of the nations. 
And then we just notice the honest response of the disciples. It says in the text that when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. It's just an honest response of human worship. We can often relate to these disciples. We are scared. We are nervous. We are like Anne was on the brink of despair, yet we worship him. We trust him. We believe in him. And then we saw the great rock-solid foundation of the Great Commission. Listen, the Great Commission is not dependent upon the missionaries. The foundation, the rock-solid, the buttress of the Great Commission is the authority of the Supreme King, Jesus Christ. He said this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. Now, this afternoon, we look at the main command of our mission. And before we look at this command, I'd like to just pray once more to prepare our hearts to receive God's word. So bow with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you willing. Lord, we are weak. We are frail. But we know and we believe that all authority has been given to the Son, that He reigns as King Supreme. He's trustworthy. He's the solid rock on which we stand. And so we have the authority and the strength to fulfill our mission. God, I pray that you'd help us fulfill our mission. I I pray that we would not be deterred by comfort. We'd not be deterred from the mission by safety or security or worldly pleasures or distractions, but God, give us a clear and a renewed sight of the Great Commission, a desire to not just know it, but to apply it in our lives. Lord, make us missionaries. Make us missionaries here and make us missionaries there, local and foreign. Help us to be devoted to your great mission, the King's mission, and we'll give you all the glory and praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So let's look at this passage, Matthew 28, starting in verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And we'll stop there this afternoon, continuing the great statement of comfort next week. The command of missions. Just observing this text, just kind of a a broad look at it, these two verses, at first glance, which verb seems to be the main command? Well, as we read it in English, look down at the text, we would see the first verb there is go. And a lot of people make a big fuss of go. There are missionary societies that emphasize this verb go. And they send people out from their missionary societies like Amazon truck drivers with packages to different countries. Go, 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 go. So it seems, even in our English translation, that go is the main command here. Go, therefore. It appears in the imperative form, so it looks like a command. But what you don't see in the English, you see very clearly in the Greek the original text, the manuscripts. And actually, if you read the Greek text, you would see that the verb go is actually a verb participle. It supports the main command of this text, but it is not the main command. The main command of missions, our purpose, our mission, is in the verb, the Greek verb. Let me. I'm going to try not to butcher this. Mathe tu sate. Mathe tu sate. And of course, translated, make disciples. Make disciples. The main command of missions is to make disciples. Our mission is disciple multiplication. That's our mission. The gospel is like an investment that bears compound interest. True disciples go and make more disciples, and the multiplication is exponential. 
make a disciple here, and that disciple makes disciples there, and so on and so forth. C.T. Studd writes, uh, English missionary to China, he writes, true faith is like a virus. We know viruses well right now. True faith is like a virus. If you get it, you give it to others, and it spreads. True disciples make more disciples. This is our mission. This is our mission. So let's hone in on our missions, our, our mission, make disciples. In order to do that, we should start with a good definition of a disciple. What is a disciple? What is a mathetes, which is the Greek word for disciple? If you looked at this Greek word, you'd see that mathetes means a pupil or a learner or a follower. Mueller writes in his Dictionary of New Testament Theology, he says, a man is called a mathetes when he binds himself to someone else in relationship in order to acquire both practical and theoretical knowledge. It's both. He may be an apprentice apprentice in a trade, a student of medicine, a member of a philosophical school, or a Padawan to a Jedi. That was for my Star Wars nerds out there. Just making sure you're listening. I added that last part in, by the way. Mueller didn't write that. The idea is that a disciple is one bound to his master in relationship. And so a disciple knows his master. He follows his master. He learns from his master the theoretical knowledge. But it doesn't end there. There's practical application. The disciple then begins to walk in his master's footsteps, to replicate his actions, and to imitate him. This is a disciple. And so a disciple of Jesus Christ is one bound to him in relationship. A true disciple of Jesus Christ knows him. A true disciple of Jesus Christ follows him. They learn from him, but not just theoretical knowledge. Practical as well. A true disciple of Jesus Christ begins to walk in Jesus' footsteps, following his example, replicating his actions, imitating him, This is a disciple. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, he says, It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. Not enough to just know the knowledge or to learn the knowledge, but to live it out, to apply, to replicate the master's actions. Jesus says in John 13, after he washed the disciples' feet, he says, You call me teacher and Lord, You are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. So a true disciple is not just one who says, I believe in Jesus, simply. Not a simple rational assent to Jesus, but one who truly has surrendered to him in a true relationship. One who has surrendered to him as Lord and follows him as master. And so, put simply, a disciple is one who surrenders to Jesus as Lord and follows him as master. So to make disciples is to lead others to surrender to Jesus as Lord and follow him as master. That's who you are if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ here today. You have surrendered to Jesus as Lord and you follow him as your master. I want to pause for a minute and ask you, how did you become a disciple of Jesus Christ? How did you become a disciple? Now, listen, I know the theology God predestined me before time to be a disciple. God called me to be a disciple. He chose me to be a disciple. Yes, amen, verily, I affirm those truths. But what means did he use? Who did he use in your life to call you to discipleship? I was 18 years old. 
sitting on the beach of Lake San Antonio. Anybody familiar with Lake San Antonio? It's right next to Lake Nacimento, Central California. No? Okay. Lake San Antonio, sitting on the beach there, and I was reflecting upon my life. I was a graduating senior. A lot of my friends were leaving. And I was thinking about high school because high school, it had become apparent that I was living a double life. I was living one way at high school with my school friends for the world, for its pleasures, and then deceptively living a different way, of course, at church and in my home. And I felt so guilty about that. I was guilty because the word of God condemned me. That whole week I was at a youth camp and the preacher kept preaching God's word and God's word was a continued indictment on my soul. I knew I was a sinner a guilty sinner with no true relationship with the Savior. And I was reflecting upon this. And then Sean Farrell came along. Sean Farrell, my high school pastor at the time, he sat down next to me on the beach of Lake San Antonio and he asked me one question. One question that God used to absolutely pierce my heart. Sean said, Morgan, who are you living for? In other words, Who is your master? I knew the answer immediately, and I said it out loud. I said, I'm living for myself. Sean said, how's that going? And I said, not good. I'm not fulfilled. I'm not happy. Sean said, I know someone better. I know a better master. His name is Jesus. Follow him. And I remember just as clear as day, Sean walked through the gospel again with me. I had heard it a thousand times, but in that moment, God used that gospel presentation. And I responded. In that moment, I surrendered to Jesus as Lord, and I chose to follow him as my true master. Sean Farrell was used by God to make a disciple. So who's the Sean Farrell in your life? Was it your parents who brought you up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord? Praise God. Parenting is disciple making, isn't it? Praise God. Was it a coworker who shared the gospel with you at work? Was it a friend that you grew up in your old grew up with in your old neighborhood that shared the gospel with you and made a disciple? Is it your now spouse who shared the true gospel with you and you were saved? Was it the guy who left the track on your door or on your office desk? Is it the guy you heard preach over the radio? the true gospel, and in that moment you surrendered to Jesus as Lord and you chose to follow him as master. Whoever it is, Christian, you are here today because someone somewhere was making disciples. You are a product of the Great Commission. Isn't that awesome? The Great Commission works. The mission works. It's Christ's mission. It's the King's mission. That the gospel would go out to all the nations And that men and women who are disciples of Jesus Christ would make more disciples. Multiply. Someone somewhere fulfilled their mission in your life. And so the question is now to you, will you fulfill your mission? As a disciple, it's our responsibility individually and corporately to make disciples. See, this command is plural. And it was given to, at the time, these disciples who would be made apostles who would form the foundation for the church. And so this command extends to the church. This is our responsibility corporately and individually. It's to make disciples. Now there's a lot of good that the church can do. A lot of good. The church can feed the poor. The church can mediate and bring peace to civil matters and society. The church can even position themselves in places of power and authority to run governments with a biblical morality. That would be great. 
The church can work hard to end world hunger, to end social injustices, to end abortion. And those are good works. Those are good things. But those things are not the mission. That's not the church's mission. The king took the disciples to Galilee and gave them a mission. And what is it? Look back at the text. See it for yourself. Verse 19, the mission is to make disciples. That's our focus. That is our aim. That is the priority. This is our mission, Summit Bible Church. Those other works, those other ministries can be means to an end to make disciples, right? But they are not the end in and of themselves. Our mission is to make disciples. So through this lens, we look to evaluate our ministries and potential future ministries. The elders of SBC will will ask, you know, does this ministry or does this future ministry further our mission? Can this ministry be a means to an end to accomplish the mission? But the mission is the priority. Make disciples. Make disciples. Make disciples. Multiplication is our mission. This is our command, our duty, our purpose, our joy. Leading people to surrender to Jesus as Lord and follow him as master. Now in that, there are aspects of evangelism, outreach, and equipping and training. Making disciples is holistic. It's not just about their salvation, but about their sanctification. Not just that they surrendered to Jesus as Lord, but so that they would follow him as master in every avenue of their life. So don't just think evangelism, evangelism, evangelism. This is aspects of equipping, teaching, instruction, training. Preaching and modeling. Going and sending. Many facets of disciple-making ministry. But the purpose is clear. Make disciples. So how do we do that? In this text, we are gifted three participles, like I said, that support the main command. These are kind of the legs to the command, some practicality, if you wish. So three participles here. We have going, we have baptizing, and teaching. Going, baptizing, and teaching. And this will help us to understand how to make disciples. So let's look first at go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Paul Washer writes, there are two extreme interpretations here. There are some who put all the emphasis on go, go, go. He said, then there are others, more studied theologians, who place all the emphasis on make disciples, make disciples, make disciples. He said, frankly, I I see both extremes leading to nothing. He says, you can't make disciples hidden in a hole. John MacArthur translates this passage, having gone, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. My pastor, Chris Mueller, translated it slightly different. As you go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. I think both translations are good, helpful, but here's the point. You can't get around the word go. Going is part of the Great Commission. You've got to move. Can't sit still. Can't stay in the church bubble, if you will. You've got to engage the outside world with the gospel and make disciples. You've got to go. We are to make disciples here and make disciples there, local and foreign mission. So let's start here, Summit Bible Church. Let's start in our hometown, the foothills. We have a mission here, don't we? And our mission is to make disciples. Have we reached all of the foothills? With the gospel. North Fontana, North Rancho, Rialto, the surrounding cities, etc. Have we reached them all? No. So let's be missional. Let's consider how we can reach more for the sake of the gospel. How we can go out and make disciples. And you say, but Morgan, there's a pandemic. And, and to top it off, we're not in our normal facility We're supposed to be in North Fontana, and we're here in North Upland. It's hard to make disciples with a mask on. It's hard to make disciples six feet apart. You know, I want to say this gently, but, you know, at the same time, I want to say 
sorry, I, I don't see an exception clause in the Great Commission. I don't see an exception clause to make disciples except for when there's a pandemic or when you're wearing a mask or when you can't get closer than six feet apart. This is our mission. This is our cause. This is what we have to be about. And just because, you know, the mission has changed, how we go about the mission has changed a little bit. No doubt. It doesn't negate the command of the mission to make disciples. And that's what we're going to stay committed to here at Summit Bible Church. And just to kind of give some context, I I have actually seen great opportunities at a time like this in such a dark world to make disciples. First of all, the gospel shines so bright amidst a dark world. It does. Amidst the darkness and the crumbling society around us, the gospel shines so bright as a beacon of true hope, true love, true justice, true peace. It's found in Jesus Christ and his gospel. That's just one opportunity. The second opportunity is, it's interesting, I've seen and I've observed a renewed interest in religious things. You know why? Because so many people are claiming that our religious liberties are going to be taken away. And that's scaring people. And so now that they're seeing, wait, my religious liberties might be taken away, all of a sudden they're showing up in church. Because they're like, maybe I should take more seriously my religious liberty. That's an interesting phenomenon. And we're observing that happen in various contexts. So there's this renewed interest in religion. doesn't make them a Christian, but it's an opportunity. And another opportunity, I've seen this actually in my own life with family, is uh, the online streaming and the reach that we have with online streaming. See, people who don't normally go to church can pull up YouTube and watch the gospel preached online. It's an incredible opportunity. I've actually shared links with my own family members that aren't saved, and they're watching. They're watching these services to hear the true gospel. What an opportunity to make disciples. So just think this week practically, how can I go and make disciples locally? How can I reach the foothills, reach my friends, reach reach my family for the sake of the gospel, that I would lead them to surrender to Jesus as Lord and follow him as master. Now, some are called to foreign missions as well. Some of you here might be called to foreign missions. Man, my prayer is that Summit Bible Church would send out more missionaries to foreign lands, foreign countries, for the sake of the gospel. What an awesome thing. How cool would that be? Some of you, as you hear this message about the Great Commission, there's a great stirring in your heart to reach the nations. That's a good, good thing. I'd encourage you to explore that, to evaluate the scriptures, to talk to mentors, to talk to the church and people that love you, that know you to either stoke that fire or help guide that fire. What an incredible, incredible thing. You know, Paul Washer, again, to quote him again, he said, foreign missions is two ministries. He says, you either go down the well or you hold the rope for the others who go down. Obviously, he's rearranging and quoting uh, William Carey's words when he stood up before the Mission Society and said, I will go, but I need you men to hold the rope for me here. There are those of us who stay and support spiritually and physically our missionaries, caring for missionaries on furlough. You can pray for missionaries on the field, financially support them in their mission. We can be a part of training up more missionaries to go out sending. What a beautiful thing. How beautiful are the feet who bring the good news. We just read that, right? We can help train up more beautiful feet to send the gospel elsewhere. Think creatively about that. Allow the Great Commission and the desire to make disciples to stir your heart and affections and the fire to go out and make disciples. It's exciting for the Christian, for the disciple, to think about making more disciples, multiplying. And don't forget the scope of missions here. you got to see back in the text, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The gospel is not limited in ethnic scope. Gospel shows no partiality. It sees no distinction. 
There is no continent, no country, no district, no city, no people group off limits. No one's left out. Disciples can be made from all nations. Part of the beauty of the gospel is that it creates one people from many. At a time like this, at a time like this, so divided politically and everywhere else, you want to unify people? You want to bring people together? The best way to do that is to make them a disciple of Jesus Christ. Christ, the gospel, unifies us together in a supernatural way. I think the most effective, the solution at a time like this. Going, first participle. Second participle, baptizing. Baptizing, I need to move quickly. The second uh, way in which we make disciples, Jesus gives us here, is baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. First of all, it should be noted here, it's one of the clearest Trinitarian passages in the Bible. All three persons of the Trinity are listed. Jesus, the Son, of course, God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus notes all three persons in one place, given kind of the same power or the same essence, if you will, in baptism. He refers to them individually, showing them being distinct persons, but unifies them in deity, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Really cool, really cool. But how, how is baptism a part of making disciples? First of all, baptism is a symbol of union. Baptism is a symbol of union with Christ. It is the first public act of initiation into the discipleship relationship. You'll remember Peter preaches the sermon at Pentecost, and the people want to respond, and they say, how shall we respond? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. The first public act of obedience or initiation into discipleship relationship. It would be similar to how putting on the gi in karate might associate you with a certain sensei at a certain gym, committing yourself as an apprentice to learn karate, being immersed in the waters of baptism, similar in the sense that it is a public testimony of your association with Jesus and your union with him. Immersed in the waters of baptism, you are unified with Christ in his death by declaring, I am dead to my old self, dead to sin, immersed in the water, and then you come back up out of the water, unifying yourself Uh, with Christ's resurrection, raised to new life in Him. In today's day and age, at least right now, to be baptized is pretty easy. There's not a lot of cost to it. But you should know that especially at the time this commission is given, and in early church history, and even in other parts of the world today, baptism is the first sign of ostracization. That's not, I didn't say that right, but you are cut off from not only family, but your community if you are baptized, especially in Islamic cultures right now. Baptism uh, in an Islamic society right now means that you've made a decision to not only leave the Islamic religion, but you've left your Islamic family. Baptism is, in their words, the point of no return. So by including baptism as a, you know, a public symbol, as a participle in this passage, it's as, if, it's as if Jesus is emphasizing that when you make disciples, you call them to a public commitment. A public commitment. The cost of following Jesus is real. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Baptism is the public statement that you are united to Christ and united to his church. You have surrendered to him as Lord, evaluated the cost of following him, and you now choose to follow him as master. 
A healthy church will have regular baptisms. Regular baptisms. It's a reflection of their commitment to the Great Commission of making disciples. Now, I'm not saying baptize everyone who comes up after service or everyone who walks through the door, infants and all. I'm not for spontaneous weekly baptisms. Unless, of course, you live in an Islamic country where you will be killed if you are baptized because then you know, hey, this person has evaluated the cost. They know what they're committing to here. I don't advocate for that, especially in our very easygoing, comfortable, secure American society. It might not be that way soon. But a church should be baptizing new believers regularly. It's just a reflection, a sign of their commitment to the Great Commission. Believers young and old. Believers young and old. Now that's a commitment we want to have here at Summit Bible Church. Baptizing as part of the Great Commission. The last participle here is teach. Teaching. Teaching. Look at verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Discipleship requires clear instruction. You've heard popular phrases today, you know. Evangelize the gospel. Use words if necessary. The implication is, you know, share the gospel through your way of life as an example. But you don't need to actually share the gospel. If you would apply that kind of lingo to making disciples, you know, some might say, Make disciples, use words if necessary. Just be an example, just be a good model, and then your children will know who Jesus is and follow him. Or just be a good example, be a good model, and your coworker will someday, by the providence of God, come up to you and say, who is this Jesus that you follow? I'm not saying that never happens, but not as much as we would like to think. Of course, we know making disciples requires some level of instruction. Words, words. You know, to say make disciples only use words when necessary is like giving someone a pile of Legos, telling them to build a detailed 5,000-piece structure without pictures or instructions. It's difficult, impossible maybe. Instruction, my point is instruction and modeling go hand in hand. And we know the best Instruction is coupled with modeling, and the best modeling is coupled with instruction. They're not separate or apart. So we're called to teach. We're called to instruct. And what are we teaching them? Look at the text, verse 20. We're teaching them to observe. Observe. Now, observe is, a, is one way to translate this verb, tereo, uh, but I, I think uh, more helpful maybe in the discipleship context is a translation to watch and keep, to watch and keep. So teaching them to watch and keep all that I have commanded you. The idea of watching and keeping, especially in the context of discipleship, is very relatable. How many of you have ever received the kind of instruction from a mentor, a supervisor, or a teacher where simultaneously with their instruction, they show you how to accomplish the task. They're both instructing and showing. That's the idea. That's the idea. Is that our goal is to teach them in such a way that they watch and keep all that Christ has commanded them. So they not only see it working in our lives, but they begin to apply it in their life. You're able to accomplish a task once you see someone do it, not just give you the verbal instruction, but they model it. That's helpful for us as we think about making disciples, living out what we preach. If we preach Christ, we say we follow Christ, we're a disciple of Christ, it should show up in our conversation and the way we live our lives, teaching them so that they would watch and keep what? This is significant. What must we teach them to observe? What's our instruction manual? What is the content that we teach? Our curriculum, if you will. Look at Christ's words here. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
that is, that is a comprehensive book. That's a big, big book. That's a lot of material. You've got to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. See, when Jesus says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, I don't think he's just talking about the red letters in your Bible. Do you have a red letter Bible? The red words, marking Christ's words. I have one. Okay, They're helpful sometimes. Helpful so that you can see really clearly where Jesus speaks in his words. But sometimes red letter Bibles can be misleading. Because it could mislead you to believe that the red words are more important than the black ones. Or that, you know, Jesus really said these things and, you know, everything else is kind of secondary to Jesus' words. That's a popular, you know, attitude in which Christians look at their Bible. There's one verse in Scripture that absolutely debunks that myth. 2 Timothy 3.16 says what? All Scripture is inspired by God. The Greek renders literally all Scripture is God-breathed. It all comes out of his mouth. And so let's think theologically for a minute. Who do we believe Christ is? Well, Christ is God. He is deity. The Son of God, truly God, truly man. Wouldn't that mean that he spoke all of it from in the beginning, Genesis 1.1, to the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all, amen, Revelation 22.21. All scripture is inspired, God breathed. So think about what Jesus is Uh, commanding us here to make disciples by teaching them all to observe all that I have commanded you. The whole book. The whole book applies to the whole man. The whole book applies to the whole woman. And not only is all scripture breathed out by God, but 2 Timothy 3.16 continuing, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete or whole or mature, equipped for every good work. See, when the word of God is watched and kept, when you observe all that Christ has commanded you, it means that the whole man, the whole woman is on the table before the book. Every aspect of our life comes under the surgeon's scalpel, God's word. Sometimes he amputates sin, correcting the damaged soul. Other times you need to be hooked up to the IV of God's promises so you don't jump off the cliff in despair. We all need all of God's word. We need it desperately. All of it. We need to be instructed by it. We need to walk in it. We need to keep it. For this is the way of life. The way of blessedness. There's such hypocrisy in religion. There can be. And I'm preaching to myself when I say this. Listen, God's word was not written to just tickle your emotions. Or to build storehouses of unused information in your head. It's not a computer hard drive to download useless data that can be repeated in an argument or in order to win. God's word was written to change your life, all of it. And it applies to all of your life. I think how can we be mesmerized, inflated in awe of Christ's words in John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then go home and disregard his words in 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. How can that be possible? How can we compartmentalize our lives with God's word? To learn and be instructed by it on Sundays and then to go home and not observe it in our 
ordinary lives. I remember distinctively one of our elders at Faith Bible Church said something that just stuck with me. Uh, It was a men's discipline conversation, uh, encouraging men to have discipline in their lives. And one of the men asked, this, this elder was a businessman, he was very busy, started work very early in the morning, sometimes five, six o'clock. And the elder was talking about how he still woke up early in the morning to read his Bible before he goes to work. And, and one of the men asked him, he said, why do you choose to still get up earlier when you could maybe just read your Bible in the evenings before you go to bed? Why, why wake up even earlier, sometimes 3 a.m. in the morning, to make sure that you read your Bible? He responded and said, because I wouldn't survive the day without it. He said, the word of God applies to every aspect of my day. I need it for everything. He said, I need it for the business meetings that I walk into. He said, I need it for the decisions that I make at work. He said, I need it when I come home to love my wife. He said, I need it in my parenting with my four boys. I need it for every aspect of my day. So I need it before I go into every aspect of my day. That just marked me. Teaching others, making disciples, is teaching others to observe all that Christ has commanded them. The Word of God applies to your marriage. The Word of God applies to your parenting. The Word of God, of course, leads you to awe and worship when Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any surgeon's scalpel. The Word of God gives abundant life to those who are planted by its flowing waters. Read the book, come under the book, love the book, live by the book, apply the book, and then teach others to do the same. The Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We're interested in width and depth. It's not just go, 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 send people out to make disciples, and who cares what you say to them, get them them to church. No. It's not just, you know, us looking at our own spiritual navels, marveling at the wonders of God and not going anywhere. We reach the world for the sake of Christ with, and we have depth in our love for God, our knowledge of Him, and depth in our love for each other and our knowledge of each other. Making disciples. That's our commitment. That's what we're here about at Summit Bible Church. And I'm, I'm more convinced than ever. I'm more convinced than ever that in this day and age, Christians need to be reminded of the Great Commission. We need to stop being so distracted by everything going on out there and recommit to the mission. Recommit to our mission. The church needs to make disciples, especially today. Too many Christians have wandered from this mission. So we must return to the king's mission. Return to him and his mission, and you'll lead a fulfilling life, even in the darkest days. Missionaries would die for the Great Commission. Church fathers have died for the Great Commission. We should be willing to do the same. This is our purpose. This is why we are here. This is why God left us here to make more disciples and didn't just save us and take us to heaven. We have a purpose. There's two reasons why he could have left us here. It's either to sin more or to make disciples. Which one do you think it is? <laughs> Those are the two things we could do here that we, won't, we wouldn't do in heaven. Making disciples is what we should be about. Well, the passage isn't done. There is an incredible comfort at the end of this that we're going to look at next week. And I'm really, really excited to share it with you. It is one of the most incom- comforting little sections of Scripture in all of the Scriptures. We are participating in communion today, so I want to transition to that time as we prepare for communion. You should have walked in and uh, grabbed one of these packages on the table out there in the foyer, maybe 
one of the ushers can help you get one if you don't have one of these packages. It has both the cracker and the juice in it. Two for one deal here. So uh, just some brief instructions on how to use them because they are kind of complicated. There are two films here. Pull off the top film to reveal the cracker and then pull off the bigger uh, film there for the juice. But just a reminder of what communion is, the Lord's table. It's an encouraging reminder for us as Christians. The Lord's table is meant for Christians. You know why? Because it's a symbol of what Jesus did on the cross for us. Jesus gave his body for us. And that's represented by the bread. Jesus spilt his blood for us. And that's represented by the cup. And his sacrifice ultimately was in our place. He died for our sins. And that is what we remember. We remember his great sacrifice. So communion is looking back at what Christ has done. But don't forget the promise at the end of every communion passage, and we'll read it in a minute. But the promise is that Christ will not participate in this again until he comes to get us, take us home, until we see him again. So there's something great to look forward to as we participate in communion. Again, these elements are just signs for, to help us remember Christ. That is the main command of communion, that we would remember him. And communion also promotes unity in the body. It's significant that we take communion together in this gathered place. Because especially in the account of 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians were divided. There was not unity in the Corinthian church. And Paul condemns them for that and reminds them of their unity in Christ. And communion is an incredibly unifying symbol for the church gathered. So I want to encourage you during this next song, while I pray, there will be a song after the prayer. And I want to encourage you during that song to reflect, to reflect on Christ and what he has done for you, to reflect on your own life, to examine yourself. Maybe there's a reason that you shouldn't partake of the Lord's table today. Maybe there is some disunity, some disharmony in your marriage or amidst between you and another brother or you and another sister. The Lord would prefer that you leave the altar and you go and make things right with your brother or sister before you come to the Lord's table and worship. So I want to encourage you to evaluate yourself, to first look at Christ, to evaluate your heart, to make sure it's right and ready to take communion. Hold on to these elements, and then I will come back at the end of the song and lead you through taking them. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for such a clear mission. Lord, forgive us for being so distracted. God, sometimes we lack courage or faith even. And uh, we don't fulfill our mission. We're not bold to share Christ with a coworker, not bold to share Christ with a neighbor or with a stranger. God, I pray you give us boldness, give us great faith to accomplish your work. Lord, as we prepare for communion, we're thankful for the reminder. We're thankful for the symbols. We need this regularly, Lord, because we are so prone to forget what you've done for us on the cross. You died in our place. You suffered. Christ, you suffered under the wrath of the Father in our place. We deserve that. But you took it for us. You've given us your perfect righteousness in a great exchange. What a gift. We are so undeserving. Lord, we want to take every sin that we've committed this week, every sin that we will commit in the future and take it to your cross. And remember that it is forgiven. It is washed white as snow because of your incredible work. Pray that as we examine ourselves, God, you be glorified in that that ultimately we will remember Jesus. He is our rock, and we trust in him. In Jesus' name, amen.